0: Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta Delomo. Today I'm joined by Alessio Scopelti, a doctoral candidate in the School of Sociology, Politics, and International Studies at the University of Bristol. He's here with us today to talk about the programmatic flexibility of radical right political parties. Alessio, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Alessio, I wanted to start with how we think about the radical right in terms of political parties. And often we think about them as having these rigid programs policy that they advocate in order to win support. But you and I both know that any political party has to evolve. And in the past years of radical right development, are we seeing changes in the programs of the radical right?
1: Well, um, when we are trying to explore what these political parties, these specific political parties are trying to say Um, We usually use in political science this economic perspective where we have uh, trying to understand what is the demand side and the supply side that relate to each other and trying to understand how political parties adapt year per year, decade by decade, even sometimes to the needs of the demand side, which correspond to the needs of the people. And therefore, yeah, the supply side is basically the program of these political parties and what their promises, uh, what they want to deliver to the electorate, basically. Before I start saying something more specific on the changes in, pro- in the programs of the radical right, I would like to give a, a broader picture of what we are actually looking for when we try to understand this kind of flexibility. And we, when I was doing my literature review, I basically found two main theories which were addressing this topic, which are the silence theory and the spatial theory. So when we are talking about the silence theory, we are basically looking for the emphasis And by the emphasis, I mean how much a specific topic matters for a party. Um, Let's say what is its priority or what this political party thinks is the priority for the country where this party is competing. And with this understanding, we can also try to explain what is the party's ownership, or I would say about a certain issue, which means, for instance, if there is a political party, party A, which in its electorate, in its, I'm sorry, in its... um, uh, manifesto in its uh, program in its programs, it dedicated most of its space to uh, promises on how to fight illegal immigrations, and then we have a party B, another party which is more concerned about climate change, therefore about um, env- environmental issues. Then, in this case, we can see that if Party A will join the government, it is more likely that the next government will provide policies in fighting illegal immigration, thinking that this is the priority for the country, and thinking that eventually that climate change and environmental issue, it's more like a um, secondary order topic, so, which is not relevant for the party uh, and for, for the country in, uh, in general. And finally, the, the demon side, as I was speaking before, they will have the perspective uh, the perception actually that party A is the genuine expert about immigration while party B is actually the genuine expert about environment so this is when we are trying to understand what is the emphasis how much emphasis parties put in certain topics but then other scholars they've tried to go beyond on how much emphasis parties put on certain topics and they are more interested about the position which means which side they stand for a certain topic and let's say the way they will, how the parties will try to handle the issue. So again, for instance, if we have a party A, which during the electoral campaign, it mostly provides values about the traditional family, then if this party will join the government, it is less likely that that government will propose progressive policies in favor of marriage or adoption by same-sex couples. Right, so we have these two fundamental points of view to take into consideration, the emphasis and the position. And now when we're looking for um, the flexibility of the radical right parties, um, more specifically in the manifestos, for instance, we try to understand two main dimensions, let's say, which is an economic dimension and a cultural dimension, which are both really important in trying to understand what these political parties actually say and what they have said in the last decades. And chronologically speaking, we have several um, theories trying to understand what these parties say. And in the early 90s, for instance, uh, for instance there was this um, theory of the winning formula, which was combining culturally authoritarian positions with economically rightist positions. So economically speaking, these radical right parties, they were in favor of neoliberal economic systems with uh, anti-tax and anti-redistribution policies. However, since then, um, some other studies have demonstrated a certain kind of decline in the neoliberal preferences and radical right parties right now. They're starting to be more in favor of a centrist economic position or even towards a welfare chauvinism position. Um, for instance, um, if I link it with my research, uh, one of my case studies is the uh, Rassemblement Nacional, which used to be called as an um, Front National, so the French National Rally now, and I could observe by analyzing the, the manifesto over the years from uh, the 80s until the last um, national um, French national election, uh, actually, yeah, yeah, the national election, we saw, which was in 2017, uh, I could observe that in the early 80s, this party was Had really strong positions towards a neoliberalism perspective. But then in the early 2000s, it shifted to a a moderate position. And finally, in 2017, the National Rally had a really strong position towards a welfare chauvinism. So, in terms, as I said before, in terms of position, we can see that political parties, radical right parties in this case, they can change over the decades. But again, the economic dimension is quite controversial, I would say, because, um, for instance, Kasmud in the early 2000s, he claimed that um, although radical right parties, they tend to support forms of welfare chauvinism, uh, they also tend to employ neoliberal rhetoric, especially in their their narrative, such as the limitation of public subsidies. Um, And this is another issue for As like, as political scientists, try to understand, try to find uh, proper data sources in order to explain and to explore what these parties say. So if we only decide decide to focus only on political manifestos, for instance, it might be um, reductive. So we must to extend other data sources, like, for instance, trying to understand the political narrative of a party, trying um, using uh, sources like the official press organ of the party, um, which was quite um, used in in the in the 80s, in the 90s, as well as in the 2000s. More recently, we can also try to understand this narrative by analyzing um, the official um, account of these particular parties, like on Twitter or Facebook and other uh, online platforms. Or we can try also to understand the rhetoric of the party through the analysis of, of uh, public speeches. So. Um, Economically speaking, so the economic dimension is still quite controversial trying to understand what these parties, they actually say and how they are changing over the years. So it's quite uh, ambiguous sometimes. On the other hand, when we are looking to the cultural dimension, we have a, a pretty good agreement in the academic literature. I mean, the cultural dimension, it is perceived uh, as the core ideology of these parties with an ardent position towards um immigration, and multiculturalism. So the radical right parties, they usually uh, refer to values like national sovereignty and ethnic homogeneity, for instance. But again, as I said, we look at the position, but we can look also at the emphasis these parties put in their manifestos. And again, going back to with my uh, research, my second case study, which is the Eternal League, um, which used to be called as the Northern League, but now it's just the League and this... To remind that this political party used, uh, it was funded actually as a regionalist party. But nowadays, when we are looking for um, trying to put a, a label, let's say, to this political party, we usually say that this is an party, a nativist party, radical right party, because it puts at the core of its supply side uh, the protection of nativist interests. Nevertheless, it shouldn't be forgotten that um, this approach about the cultural dimension has changed over the years. Uh, by that I mean, for instance, that it was only during the annual meet, annual meeting in 1996 when the the previous leader Umberto Bossi he argued during this meeting that this uh, that the party needed to put more emphasis on the ethnic issues among regions in Italy rather than exclusively focusing on economic or social issues in order to call for more independence for Padania, uh, for this northern region which was called uh, Padania in order to be independent. From the rest of the country, so again, we have to be really careful trying to understand how much uh, emphasis this party said. It might be a signal of the change of their supply side, but of course, also the position—it's important as well. So, in, in this sense, I think they are both really important to take into account in order to understand the supply side of radical right parties.
0: Well, That's super helpful, especially as you're sketching out that there's primarily economic or cultural drivers that, that cause these, these major shifts in the, whether it's the manifestos or the programs of these political parties. But I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what pushes them to make these changes. Do they all change in the same way? What is it that drives political parties from your research to pursue, whether it's a, a more economic change or a more cultural change, which pushes them into these two avenues?
1: again uh, the the current literature it's uh, it doesn't find an agreement let's say on in order to explain which are the main the, the, let's say the factors behind this programmatic flexibility of these parties i I would like to shift the attention rather than uh, trying to understand the the economical reason or the cultural reasons i mean there are several theories uh, which we probably will uh, address later. Uh, regarding the new cleavage theories, uh, talking about new topics, new ideological conflicts that are affecting um, the current Western European uh, party systems, and of course, including also the radical right parties, which they are the first representants of these new cleavages. But yet, philosophically speaking, I would say, um, the main disagreement and trying to understand which are the factors behind these changes. Rather than the topic... It's more um, uh, a discussion about the processes behind these changes. And starting with the first one, which was um, proposed mostly by uh, Lipset and Rocken in the late, in the late 60s, uh, which is a sort of a bottom-up approach, where basically political parties, they are um, an institutionalized expression of unorganized conflicts that are basically latent in society. So, for instance, uh, taking into consideration one of the most traditional and most um, important salient, actually, classical cleavage in uh, European party systems, if the left versus right scale or the conflict between employers versus workers, then this kind of conflict is, it doesn't really exist, let's say, in the social realm. So, we have people who have these antagonist values, these antagonist uh, um, needs, and they fight against each other. And then these needs... So, starting from the social realm, they go; they are interpreted in from uh, by actually uh, organization of people, which are political parties, and then they are finally the object of the conflict in a society. So again, it's it is a bottom-up approach because the initiative, let's say, it's coming from the bottom, from the demon side, and going to the supply side, to the top. The second approach, which was proposed mostly by Giovanni Sartori, as a a critic to this bottom-up approach, is the top-down approach. So it's a reverse process where the initiative, let's say, is taken by the political parties. And in this case, um, the party is not the consequence of the conflict, but rather, and and actually before it, it is the conflict that receives its identity from the party. So with this approach, let's say that we have organized group of people that they identify that there is a cleavage that needs to be uh, perpetuated and addressed in society, and they, let's say, fuel the conflict, they fuel this ideology, and they find consensus by driving and shaping this new conflict that will eventually have an impact in the, in the party system and in the competition among political parties. Talking about more um, now the topic of how radical right parties have changed over the years, over the decades, actually, I would say, so I'm more specialized in Western European, Western European countries. I would say that this uh, talking about more in aggregate data, it shows that radical right part, the radical right party family as a whole tend to move towards the same direction eventually. So in terms of position, they are more polarized towards, currently they are more polarized towards a nativist um, ideology and a welfare chauvinist ideology. In terms of emphasis, I would say that the radical right um, parties they dedicate more space to the cultural dimension than the economic one, because even if they are trying to address the economic dimension, the economic dimension is usually resolved with cultural, um, with a cultural dimension, with a cultural narrative. For instance, if you are losing a job opportunity, then we can resolve this problem not like changing the labor market or providing more incentives in order to facilitate the labor market, for instance. But we will, for instance, block uh, immigration. There will be a stronger immigration control or we are going to expel illegal immigrants. And this is a way, it's a cultural um, strategy to solve an economic uh, issue.
0: reasons. I really like, Alessio, the way that you just described it as that these are these are welded together, right? That separating them out into just economic or cultural is, is sometimes not useful when we're thinking about how these programs are, are really involving and that they're often tied together. So I'd like to know a little bit about, as a reacher, researcher, how you're actually able to track these parties' flexibility.
1: Thank you for the question. So basically, with my research, I mostly rely on the cleavage theory as I said. And the cleavage theory is basically a theoretical model that has been used and is actually uh, still used nowadays by scholars on competitive party systems, political parties, and voting behavior. Um, This kind of model, this model, is usually applied to answer uh, several research questions, like um, trying to understand whether a national party system changed over the years uh, what is party strategy and whether they adapt over the, the key issues structuring their social and political context, and also trying to explore or to understand the links between voters and political parties. In a few words, the cleavage model, a cleavage structure in it's, uh, uh, is an ideology, is an ideological conflict that is created by uh, historical events or major events or, or even called as historical junctures. That basically creates societal and political lines within societies, which divide citizens into different groups with different social needs or political interests. And these cleavages can determine many factors, like, as I said, voting behavior, countries party systems, or even the type of political parties that are created and they then compete against each other in a a certain country. the cleavage theory has been addressed by several years. There are, have been several followers about this theory, and it has even been improved and also in trying to understand what conflict can be defined as a cleavage. All right. and I mostly refer also from the contribution from Bartolini and Mayer in the early nineties that they successfully provided a more cons- a more uh, conceptual clarity on what is a cleavage and when a certain conflict can be de- can be defined as a cleavage. And there are three main aspects that are necessary, that are, are really important, and they are interrelated to each other, and they are all fundamental in order to define a social conflict as a cleavage structure. And these are the empirical aspect, a normative aspect, and an organizational aspect. So the empirical aspect uh, is more related on, as I said before, trying to find in the social realm these differences. So it's more related in trying to find these social social demographic characteristics that distinguish people in two different groups. This is the case, for instance, when we are thinking about the classical cleavage, urban versus rural, then we will look at those people who are living in an urban area and those people that are living in a rural area. And then we can see that these two populations, they can have different needs and political uh, goals. That a country should achieve in in the future and uh, for their lives, lifestyles. Then there is a normative aspect, and which means that beyond the existence of these social demographic characteristics that differentiate individual, individual in these antithetical groups, there must be also a common set of values or ideas that provide a sense of collective belonging for these groups. So there must be a sort of ideas and values that identify these true groups and find this ideological conflict between these two uh, different uh, two different types of uh, groups of people, and finally there is the organizational aspect. This is another fundamental element because we cannot have a, a cleavage if there isn't this element. Let's say a sort of uh, organizational expression, which can be through a political party, it can be through a trade unions, so churches, it can so it can it can comes from uh, civil society and so on. This is fundamental because the cleavage is an, an, an organized phenomenon. So it needs a political party, mostly. It needs an organization of people in order to drive this conflict and in order to be used and try to answer to these needs and, and where then eventually these political parties compete against each other. So drawing from this amount of literature, I have that in order to understand the flexibility of parties, it's not enough trying to understand their supply side, let's say, um, trying to understand how internally a political party decides to shift its position or emphasis over the years. So, of course, the supply side is an important part, So, which I call also as the internal flexibility, trying to understand if over the decades, this political party has changed, although The cleavage theory has this implicit assumption that political parties, once they are funded over a certain cleavage, they cannot change side by definition. But in my research, I've tried to demonstrate the opposite. I try to explain that actually a party can change, but this is not enough. We need also to understand the political context. If this one has changed, so we have to see the demon side or the the context of flexibility and this is explained through by analyzing the empirical aspect and the normative aspects. So in this way, we can see if there is actually a polarization within society over a certain topic and trying to see if a certain social demographic characteristic split the society into two different sides. I mean, if a certain um, group of people have a certain kind of opinion and another group of people have another, a different opinion, which is differentiated only by this specific social demographic characteristic. And finally, there is also the organizational aspect which must be uh, explored, which I called an external flexibility. So, which is something that is beyond the control of the party, which means that people should be driven to vote for the party by different attributes. For instance, a politi- the case of the League. The League, it was a party that was funded on the regionalist. Uh, Cleavage. So the cleavage between the center versus the periphery, it is a kind of a cleavage where you have um, locals with a different uh, ethnic group, or they have a different language, or even a different religion, which are in conflict with the, the center, which is the, um, the dominant culture of a country. So, in this case, I could notice from my analysis, for instance, um, trying to understand the voting behavior, that in the 80s, most of the people that used to vote for the league, which was, as I said, uh, called the Northern League, they used to be in favor of the periphery. They felt more attached to their village or to their region. However, this was in the 80s, but in the last election in 2018, now the more a person is attached to its region, to its uh, village or city, the less likely this person will will vote for the party. So in this sense, we can see that there has been a change. And um, of course, this kind of difference happened. It was also clear when the party, the League, decided to change its name. It was the Northern League, and now it is the League, which, we, which means that it's trying to propose itself in a more a national way. Um, perspective, let's say, in trying to represent all the national interests of the people and not also Italians coming from the northern regions. Now, I try to understand this kind of flexibility, but uh, with my research, I, I am mostly interested in not only in trying to understand how the classical cleavages have changed in these radical right parties, but also trying to understand how these parties have have changed over the years over a new cleavage structure, which is the transnational cleavage.
0: Hmm. Well, Alessio, I'm going to just prompt you and ask you about the transnational cleavage, because one of the things that I found so interesting about what you've been discussing is it really focuses on the internal mechanisms, politics, demographics, cultural, economic shifts of the specific states the political parties are operating in. But one of the big shifts that scholars have really noted, and I think even just everyday observers of the far right have seen, is that these groups are really starting to look very externally, that they're not just internally driven. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about transnational cleavage and the way that, you know, maybe some of these groups are changing their programs based on perhaps what they're seeing other radical right parties do and find success in, in areas outside of their domestic context.
1: Yeah, of course. So when we're talking about the transnational cleavage, I um, rely mostly on the contribution by Hugen Marx. To, these are the two scholars that theorized uh, this new cleavage structure. And um, basically, the transnational cleavage is a sort of, of process, is a, a new cleavage, is a new divide. where na- basically national governments, they voluntarily delegated their authority from the national to the international level. With the assumption, let's say, that this kind of transfer of, of sovereignty would have facilitated the engagement with global issues such as uh, environmental issues, uh, terrorism, uh, economic or migration crisis, or even in terms of geopolitical balances with other superpowers, countries like uh, in terms of international relations with the United States, uh, Russia, and China, and so on. I decided to focus more on the transnational cleavage, uh, which I identify as one of the branches of the new cleavage theory. Uh, By that, I mean that the new cleavage theory collect, um, I would say, a plethora of of different studies which were addressing this topic that the current political parties uh, and the current party systems, European party systems, are affected by the advent of new cleavages. And I think that the new transnational cleavage is a better example, try, or better cleavage, or to explain the current political um, context that we are witnessing nowadays, um, because of its multidimensional nature, I would say. So in my research, in my in my dissertation, I labeled this transnational cleavage, this new cleavage structure as an institutional cleavage because of its origin. It was determined by the advent, by the the signature of the of the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. So it has an institutional region, this kind of conflict. And we can see um, similar patterns. So I differentiated other new cleavage theories like uh, an economic one, which is uh, defined with, which refer to um, uh, the, from the work from Hans-Peter Kesey and his colleagues about the, the conflict between the losers versus winners of globalization, And again, another cultural new cleavage, which refers to the cultural backlash uh, theorized by uh, Pippa Norris and Inglehart. Now, going back to the institutional cleavage, uh, uh, to the transnational cleavage, I think that this cleavage, it has um, an institutional region. So it was defined by this Maastricht Treaty. However, it has a multidimensional nature because from this institutional conflict, we have different logics of conflict which I think there is a first one is the institutional, of course. It is related to, let's say, the more uh, broader um, idea or dream of of the Federalist uh, European Union. So having about the political European integration process where you have on the one side the Federalist pro-Europeans and on the other side those that claim back the national sovereignty. Then there is an economic conflict here as well, in terms of its nature, which is uh, a clash between a neoliberal system, which was the original idea of this common market that used to be uh, the European project. It started as an economic project, an European economic integration process, where with the, uh, a common market, the open of, of boundaries, and uh, also mobilization of, of workers within these European territories. So we have on the one side the nuclear, those that stands for um, sense of marketism versus those that have a more sense of welfare chauvinism. So a more sense of protectionism for the, the economy of their national countries. And finally, there there is also a cultural logic of conflict with the European project, because the European integration Projects, project has started with the idea to create, first of all, to have a sort of um, agreement and friendship between uh, people. So trying to create a multicultural uh, identity. Indeed, there is this idea to, to build an European sovereign, um, transnational identity. So we have this sort of conflict between uh, multiculturalism versus nativism. So those people that uh, they recognize their, themselves as Europeans and those that on the other side, they recognize themselves firstly from their national identity. Now, having in mind that the transnational cleavage can have this multidimensional matter might be also a way to explain why in European politics uh, literature we had a plethora of studies on trying to define what is a I mean, there are so many so many definitions. Um, there is um, a hard aerosepticism, a soft aerose- aerosepticism also on the other side, so of pro-Europeanism, like a federalist uh, European, utilitarian European, or even in terms of ethnicity, so ethno-federalist Europeanism, so there are different ways to define what is Eurocepticism or pro-Europeanism, which I think are determined by these different dimensions. In a sense, for instance, the utilitarian uh, Eurocepticism or pro-Europeanism, it depends which side you're looking at, uh, it could be a political party which is in favor of a political integration or a cultural multiculturalism. Oh, actually, no, I'm sorry. It is in favor of the economic uh, integration. So it it must be utilitaristic for its country, but it doesn't want um, a political integration. This was, you could say, the case of the United Kingdom, maybe, for some some aspects. And, um, again, I think that... This, um, the transnational cleavage is, is worth it to be analyzed because I, I think that the transnational cleavage is, I um, hope I will pronounce properly, is the zeitgeist of the European politics. I think that most of the Western European party systems, they will clash about this topic. And we already witnessed that from, from different, uh, in different opportunities in different uh, elections. Um, talking about more at the European level, for instance. We could notice that for the first time with, with the last European election, we had a um, higher rate of people who went to vote to the election. And currently in the European Parliament, we have a really strong um, clash between those parties that are allied because they have a pro-European project and those that are more critical with the European integration project. But we have this kind of clash, not only at the European level, but also at the national level. I mean, in the last French and Italian um, electoral campaigns, for instance, in 2017 in France, we have this clear conflict between uh, Emmanuel Macron and Marie Le Pen, uh, who were clashing to each other about the European issue. I mean, it was the transnational cleavage was addressed in the national level. It was the main driving um, issue orientation that uh, uh, shaped the voting behavior on on that time. And we had a similar case also in Italy, for instance, uh, where for the first time, from the election of the uh, in Italy of in 2018, we had for the first time uh, the, a government which was completely heterosceptic. It was an alliance between the Five Star Movement and and the Liga, and this one was the first. It was the first Conte cabinet. And it was a clear populist, eroseptic parties, and, and, and government, I'm sorry. And this was the really first time having an Italian government which was clearly eroseptic. And finally, or even where I'm living now in, in the UK, we had there has been another election the last year. And the main topic was, uh, again, the transnational cleavage. On the one hand, you have the laborers. The laborers uh, party, which was more ambiguous about the Brexit referendum, if whether doing another one or maybe not, or respect the, the, um, the will of the people, let's say. While on the other hand, the Conservative Party won that election because they were really clear on which kind of message they wanted to, to deliver during the election, which was to get Brexit done. So again, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> so again, I think that transnational cleavage is fundamental for European uh, politics.
0: No, Leslie, I'm absolutely convinced based on what you've just said that the, the transnational cleavage is going to be this, this big frontier and how we're thinking about the changes in the far right. So I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for our listeners who want to know more about you and find more about your work uh, is your work online, where can they connect with you and read more about the kinds of research that you're doing?
1: Ah, yeah, of course. I try to be as much active as I can online with Twitter or LinkedIn mostly. But if you want to be in touch with me uh, for future project or re- report or interviews, so you can just contact me by email. And uh, I'm also quite active with the car organization. So thank you very much again for inviting me.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in, Alessio. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you all next time.